Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We've got a lot to cover today. And so I'm going to just jump right into it, if you don't mind. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. This is what the Word of God says. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing or arguing or squabbling with them. Verse 15, and when the whole crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and and, and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, this is to the disciples. Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. There is, just pause, there's a lot of, Jesus being annoyed in this passage, okay? He comes up to his disciples. His disciples are arguing with people and he's like, why are y'all arguing? And then when he finds this out, he says, how long do I got to put up with you? Um, So that's just, I just want to point that out. Verse 20, so they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, he immediately threw the boy into convulsions and he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father from childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into a fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out shrieking and throwing him into a terrible convulsion. The boy became like a corpse so that many said he is dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. There's lots of times, to be honest with you, when we read the text in preparation for our sermons, there are times where we... We don't know how we can add to it. There's times where we just want to read the text and go, that, do that, all right? And that's the whole of the sermon. This isn't one of them. It's equally confounding and a little bit puzzling, but it's one of those texts, when I read that, I walk away not going that, do that. I walk away with, what am I supposed to do with that, right? When you read this text, let's imagine this morning, You woke up, you got a cup of coffee, your favorite comfy chair, you sat down to read your Bible and to pray like you're supposed to do, and you read that story. What are you supposed to do with this, right? Is this a story on the next time you encounter a demon-possessed child, do this? Is that what Jesus is teaching us? Is that what Mark wants us to know? It is such an unfamiliar, unrelatable story. But my hope this morning, my goal this morning, is to give you some context and some settings and to look at the words in such a way that what seems so unrelatable actually becomes very practical for us. Let's begin with the setting. 
the setting. It, it, the story that we read just starts off when they came to the disciples. They is important and where they came from actually matters in this story. They is Jesus, James, John, and Peter. Those three we call the inner circle. And Jesus had just taken them to a mountaintop experience. On this mountain, Jesus is transfigured. It's what we call the transfiguration in which Jesus has this, um, this glorious appearance to him, this majestic glow to him, and he is talking with Moses and Elijah. God's voice, like it did in the baptism, comes down from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. It is for all, all intents and purposes, for all manner of speaking, this is a mountaintop experience. Perfect communion with God and others. Everything's right in the world. That's what's going on. It is a great and glorious moment. But you can't stay on the mountain top, all right? Jesus comes down from the mountain, he and the inner circle, and they approach the disciples to find uh, some problems. To find some problems. Let's start, let's look at the problem, okay? We've seen the setting. Now let's look at the problem. As he approaches, he finds his disciples and those who are against Jesus arguing. So that's just a setting. You ever walked into your house and your kids are squabbling? You ever done that? And it just drains you. You don't even know what they're fighting about, right? It just drains you. Jesus walks up and he sees the disciples and the scribes arguing. And it's just a scene of noise and it's frustrating and it's exhausting and it's annoying because the disciples aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're arguing. And that often happens, something that really frustrates Jesus. Not only that, there's a crowd around them, like a lot of people just standing there. And I don't know what it is about a fight or about an argument, but people love to see those things, right? There are certain people that just get energized about it. I'm not going to make you raise your hands on who you are, but I'm just thinking that's something you need to reflect on and talk to your counselor about. Most of us just get exhausted from fighting. Most of us just don't want to fight. We don't want to be in this constant upheaval and this constant stress, but there's a group of people that are just around it. Fight, 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 right? Disciples and the scribes and Jesus walks in on all of this and he's just immediately annoyed by it, just exhausted by the whole scene and all of it centers on a boy who was demon-possessed. The Bible says that uh, whenever the demon would take control of him, he'd become rigid, drop to the ground, um, wouldn't talk, that sort of stuff. Donnie uh, De La Cruz, our college minister, said, are they sure this was demon? This just sounds like a kid. This just sounds like, like a toddler, all right? And uh, it was a demon, all right? So, but not to make light of it, it is a life or death serious situation. The boy didn't do anything to become demon-possessed. The boy didn't do anything to earn this. The boy is in a circumstance in which he could die. To hear the father describe it, there are times in which the demon throws the child into the fire, or throws the child into the water, and, and I assume that the dad or the mom or whoever's standing by, maybe an older sibling or a friend, has to jump into the water or pull them out of the fire. This has to be an incredibly stressful situation true life or death circumstances that Jesus just walks into right after this mountaintop experience. This is a real serious problem. And isn't that the way that our lives go as well? You ever have a great day, great morning? Everything's good, the weather's great. 
You wake up, it's your birthday, you got enough stars for a free drink at Starbucks. Your jam comes on the radio, you've got new jeans on, and you are getting along with your wife or your, or your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Everything is perfect. And then you walk into class or you walk into work and it's like you walked into a wood chipper. It's like nobody wants to participate in your parade. Has that ever happened to you? Happens to Jesus. He walks from a mountaintop experience right into what we would call a dumpster fire. And I'm curious, how many of you right now, you walked in here dealing with a dumpster fire out there? Like work, school, family, extended family, finances, health. There are these circumstances around you that they're not small circumstances, they're big deals. There are big problems, big challenges that you got to somehow navigate. And right in the middle of all the smoke and the flames and the fire, you just think to yourself, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I've done everything that I can do. A very serious, real life or death problem. Jesus walks right up in the, to the middle of that. And as it is with us, there are a couple avenues, a couple of ways that we immediately go when we have these sort of problems, Right? Right? When you're dealing with something that you can't overcome, you're going to immediately deal and go after one of two. The first one is positions of influence. The very first thing that we do, a lot of us, is we go after positions of influence. Let me ask you, who's the most connected person that you know? You ever thought about that? Who's the person you know that because you know them, you think, and eh, not too much can happen, you know? If, if I get in a tight spot, I'm going to call so-and-so. If it just really gets hairy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it my friend. You know, connections, influence, networking, it matters. It makes the world spin. Maybe you need a job, but you're not worried about it. You got a friend that's hiring, right? You need to get into a class that's full, but you need it to graduate. And you're not worried about it because your dad's friends with the dean and it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to work out. Or maybe you want to make a team, but you're not a really great athlete, but your mom's the assistant coach, so it's fine. You're, gonna, you're not going to make the team, you're going to start, you know? So it's good. Connections matter. They matter in life. If you know somebody that's influential in their community or in your religious circles or in your family, you like knowing that person. I see that right here in this story. Very first group of people that is mentioned are the scribes. The scribes. There's nobody more influential or connected than the scribes. Now, we don't have that position, so it's not something that really registers with us, but it is hard, very difficult for me to overstate just how influential these guys were. They were connected on a political level. They were connected on a civil and a community level. They were connected on a religious level. And so let me ask you this question. Don't you think that's where the dad went first? Don't you think that's how they even got involved in this story? Maybe the dad being from that area knows one of the scribes that's from that area. Maybe they went to grade school together, grew up around the corner from one another. He has a son that has a serious, a grave issue, life or death. He goes to his buddy. He goes to his friend. Maybe even tells his wife, don't worry about it. I'm going to go talk to Jack. He's a scribe. He's a scribe. He's going to take care of this. He's going to say he's going to know what to do. He's going to know who to call. He's going to know how to get this done. Goes to ask him. Man, can you help me out? This is my child. I'll do anything. I, I'll, I'll owe you. Help me out with this. You go to those positions of 
influence. We all carry those. We all feel that way. When things get bad, who do you call? When things get really bad, what's that position that you're going to be calling on, that you're going to be impressed by? I hear stories all the time. People will talk about so-and-so. So-and-so visited our church. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know about her? No. Well, her mom used to live next door to somebody that was really high up in Walmart. I hear these stories all the time, and I'm always like, so what? You know, like, who's your mom's neighbor? I don't care. You know, do you? But we are so impressed by positions of influence. If somebody was high up in Walmart, I'm telling you, it is currency in this community. People like that sort of stuff. People love that sort of stuff. We are impressed by positions. Did you hear so-and-so? You know what he is. You know what she is. And then they'll say their title. We're impressed by positions. We love positions. There's something comforting about knowing somebody who is connected, right? Am I wrong? This is a thing. It's a thing. But not only that, not only do we feel comforted by that, we also have this pressure that is built into whenever we hold positions. Whenever you hold a space, we strive for it. We want that thing. We think to ourselves, if I was the boss, I wouldn't have these problems. If I was a starter or a coach, it would go different. If I was in a different position, a social status, then I could make this all work out. If I was just in a certain position, then I could, I could really make these things work out. See, we're, we're putting our trust that no matter what happens, that a certain position of influence, whether I hold it or somebody else holds it, that likes me, that's going to make things better. Dad went to the scribes. I'm assuming that. I, I, I'm telling you, I'm assuming that. It's just very likely that he would have went to the scribes or the Pharisees or the religious leaders of his days. He went to that, why? Because they held a position. So let me encourage you at this juncture of the story to A, don't be so impressed with positions. Man-made positions. Everybody's got them. Everybody knows things. It's all out there. It's like honors. You graduated with honors, you know? And uh, you went to this or, or this. And just a, you have a different color tassel. And we're so impressed by these things in the moment. But at the end of the day, they don't really add up to a lot of things. Don't be so impressed with positions. The other thing is give yourself some grace with the position that you hold. Right? You hold a position. Everybody does. You're the captain or the upperclassmen. You're the superior or the chair of the department. You're the one in the room that everybody is looking to. And so with that comes this expectation. It comes this pressure. You feel that pressure. And what you forget is that whatever position it is that you hold, whatever title it is that's on the little magnetic nameplate that you get to put in your shirt, whatever that is, you're still just a human. And the other person sitting at the head of the table they're just a human. It's just humans here. Don't be so impressed with positions. Don't be so obsessed with positions. One of the ways that we deal with very big, serious life or death problems is positions of influence. That didn't work, but hey, there's another one. There's a second one. We don't only go for positions of influence. We also go for just straight up power, just straight up power. Obviously when those influential positions didn't work out or didn't get it done, the dad goes to the disciples. 
the disciples are not influential. We think of them as the pillars of the church. But at the time, this is just like a, uh, like Jesus and his, and his merry band of, of thieves, you know, just walking around. It's, it's not that interesting. Some of them are fishermen. Some of them are tax collectors. It's not that fascinating or impressive group of people. But they have something that the scribes did not have. Skill. They had ability. In fact, the crazy thing is that they had already been previously successful in the very same thing that the Father is asking them to do. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. I'm going to put it on the screen here behind you, or I'm not. They are, all right? Verse 12 and 13 says this. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. They did this. The problem that is in front of them they have done, they have the skills, they have the skins on the wall. So it makes so much sense that the dad would have gone to them. The scribes couldn't get it done with their positions of influence. So maybe somebody with straight up power, the ability to get it done. You see, what happened was this dad walks up to the disciples. There's nine of them left, right? Three of them are up on the mountain with Jesus, but there's nine of them and they're standing around. And this dad comes with this kid that obviously has some issues, obviously has some problems going on. Brings him out. One of the disciples says, what's going on? He says, oh, well, I think he's demon possessed. That's what I think. I can imagine the disciples saying, y'all about to see something special. Y'all just step back. I'm about to impress you guys. Get your cameras out. Did I ever tell you about the time that I healed a demon-possessed person? There's another person that like, only 14 times, all right? Only 14 times. Well, you're about to see it again, right? That sort of stuff. That, that like, I got this. And listen, there's something about that. We run into problems sometimes where we think we got this. I ain't afraid of that meeting. I ain't scared of no ghost. I'm not mad. I'm not worried. You know why? Because I got this. Nobody messes with me. Nobody does this. I've got this, this ability, this fortitude, this internal strength. You know what else is fascinating about this? If you go back to uh, chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus is the one that gave him the ability. It says, Jesus summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. And he what? And he gave them authority over demons. All right. So at this point, this dad has to be like, Jesus told them that they could do this. They have done this. I need them to do this. So do it. But they can't. Why can't they? Just in your devotion. We're just having devotions here. So you're writing this down in your journal. When you write this down in your journal, why can't they? There's no logical sense. No, no expected reason why they can't do it. Well, it's because they began to think that their abilities and their accomplishments and their experiences were all based on how great they are and not how great Jesus is. See, Jesus gave them the ability. Jesus sent them out and somehow they thought this was all about them. This is like the old dude that tells the story about that football play he made back in high school. The way he tells the story, he doesn't need a coach, a quarterback, a line. He just made that touchdown completely by himself. Didn't even need the whole team. It was all based on him. And we have this tendency. We have this bent towards when we accomplish something or when we're successful at something in the moment, we need Jesus. But afterwards we look back and go, good thing Jesus has me. 
Because I'm here, I'm on Jesus' team. That's why Jesus is so successful, to be honest with you. He picks good people, the best people. That's what Jesus does. It's what we tend to think. It's what we tend to lean. So sometimes when we run into problems, we think, I'm not that worried about it because my parents, they got money. I'm not that worried about the problem because my parents got My doctor, you ever heard of my doctor? He's like, he's like the chair of the department. He's the head of the department. They flew him in from Memphis, all right? That's my doctor. I'm not that worried about this issue. I can't really fix it, but I know somebody that can. We lean towards those positions or, and this is more common, so I know you're judging the people that look at positions, but this is the rest of you. I ain't worried about this. I ain't worried about this. I'll just, I'll just pick myself up by my own bootstraps. There ain't never been a problem that I've ever faced that ever got the best of me. You know why? Because I'm strong. I'm strong. Sometimes it hurts, but I don't show it because I'm strong. In here, I'm strong. My dad raised me to be strong. My mom raised me to be strong. I've got enough money. I'm smart enough. I'm creative enough. I'm wise enough. There's just something about me that ain't nothing I've ever faced, ever got the best of me. We don't look towards positions. We look towards power. And I'm powerful. That's the way that we tend to fix these issues, right? Am I right? That's what we do. So Jesus shows up and he sees them arguing, which annoys him. He's frustrated, he's tired. And he takes care of it. He heals the boy. And he sends them off on their way. Look at verse 28. And after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, hey, why couldn't we drive him out? You can hear that, right? You can hear him saying that. Like, what? what happened back there? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus says it wasn't position, scribes. It wasn't power, your ability. It was prayer. Now, some of you may say, pause, hold on a second, Josh. Listen, Jesus has a position, all right? And he's powerful, right? So he's the Lord of the universe, creator of everything. So it kind of was position and power. Okay, I'll give you that. Except for this, Jesus is irritated at them for arguing and not doing what they were supposed to be doing. They could have healed the kid, but they weren't. Why? Because they were arrogant and because they were arguing. Because they were distracted and they were stuck on themselves. See, Jesus at least assumes that they could have done what they needed to do. So it wasn't tied. It wasn't only that Jesus and his position and his power could do it. They could have. They just didn't. When I used to read this story, I would think to myself a lot along the lines of uh, Jesus had a special prayer. Like he was saying the right words in the right way. Almost like a, like a magic trick. Like hocus pocus, like a spell. And I don't really run into demon-possessed children that I know of. I've been around some kids, but the ones that I know of that are demon-possessed. I'm, I'm not running into any demon-possessed children, but even if I did, I don't know the words. I don't know the right words. I don't know the right way to say it. See, that's the way that my brain goes when I read this story. That's not what he's saying. In fact, we don't even know the prayer that he prayed. It's not the words. It's the attitude toward prayer. I was so distant from the meaning of the text because I was looking at it like it was all wrapped up in some ability that I could do. And that's actually what 
It's saying against. Jesus isn't saying that you have to say the right words in the right way. He's saying you have to be dependent on God, that it's a heart of prayer. He says this kind, which is interesting to me. We, we can pendulum this thing to where we're like, look, God is the one who gives us strength and glory. So we're just going to wait on God. We're just going to wait on God. I've heard churches do that. I've been around people, decision makers. They're just like, we're just waiting on the Lord to lead. And really all they're saying is, we ain't doing nothing. We're just sitting here. We're just sitting here. You getting anything done? Did you make a decision? Did you, did you come up with a decision? Nah, we're just waiting on the Lord, divine Lord, just drop it down. He hadn't yet. So we're just waiting. Good, you should wait on the Lord. Also, he gave you a brain and abilities. The, the New Testament says he gifted people for the good of, this, of the church, right? So he didn't gift you so you could hold the gift and go, just waiting on God, just waiting on God. There are things that he gifted us to do that he expects you to take care of. He expects you to take care of. There are needs in the nursery. We need people to go work in the nursery. You can sit there and go, we're just waiting on the Lord to send us workers. And the Lord's saying, you are the workers. Get up. All the time, we kind of blame it on that way. And I get that. I get that, the God, that God does give us abilities. He is the source. He's the strength. But there are certain things that he gave you the ability to do and he expects you to take care of it. But, and yet, however, there are other things. It's so much bigger than us. It's just so, so much bigger than us. There are things that you read about on the news I have no idea how to fix that. There are things, there are storylines, there's, there's divisions and gossip and fighting and stuff like that that I have no, I don't, I don't know how to fix that. It's bigger than any one of us, it's bigger than all of us. And there are things in your life, there are medical circumstances and relational circumstances, there are financial issues in your life that you can come to me if you want. We can get coffee, we can sit down, I will listen to you. I promise you, I will listen to you. And at the end of the day, I don't know what to do about that. It's just so big, bigger problems. To that, Jesus says, this kind, it only comes through prayer. What happens in prayer is what's fascinating. When we pray, when we really authentically pray, we do a couple of things, four things that I wrote down. You could maybe write down more in your devotional journal that we're all doing here together. The first one is that when you pray, you recognize that God is real, that he is. We don't pray to the nothing. You never pray to um, what you know to be false. None of you pray to a uh, little Buddha man at, at, the, at, the, at the restaurant. You know, you don't pray to that because you know that's false. When we pray, we pray because we know he is real. He is. Secondly, we pray because we recognize him as a person, that he hears, that he is present. So he is and he is a person, not a nameless force, not a, not a feeling, but, but, a, but a moral agent. He is, he hears, and he cares. Look, if you knew somebody didn't care about you, you're not gonna ask them for anything. But because we know God cares, we ask him because we know that he will intervene. He not only hears, but he listens. He is, 
He is a person, he cares, and he is able. We ask him for things because we know that he will act. We know that he is able to do far better, far greater than anything that you could even ask for. That's why we pray. When we genuinely, authentically pray, we acknowledge that you are, you're here, you listen, and you care. That's what Jesus wanted them to do. He's saying some of these problems are only fixed when you're in that space, when you're in that mode. All of this, when it's genuine, we recognize that no matter who we know or what we got or how strong we are or the position on the nameplate on our office door, that we need Jesus to take care of these problems. We need God to fix what's broken. Our Father, who loves us and cares in heaven, holy and completely set apart. You are king of your kingdom, powerful and majestic. Your will be done here just like it is in heaven. Give us a day what it is that we need and let us be what honors you. When we pray that way, when we believe that, Jesus says, there's nothing impossible. There's nothing impossible. And that's Jesus's point. You tried human positions. You tried human power. What you need is the king. You need the power from the king. You will likely, or you are facing issues that you just can't fix on your own power or who you know. You need to fully depend on God, trust him, and lean into his sovereignty. That's why you're devotional. What you write down in your little journal, that's why it should say things like, When things get bad, where do I go? When things get bad, who do I ask? Am I leaning into God? Or am I only going to God when I've tried everything else? That's what we should pray. With all of this, I wanna wanna share one more thing with you. And honestly, I think I kept the best for last. One more thing and I'll be done. We talked in the story about the scribes and their positions of influence. We talked about the disciples and their ability, their power to get things done. We talked about Jesus rightly turning people's attention toward prayer. So problem, positions, power, prayer. We talked about all of that. And there's one person we didn't really spend a lot of time on in the story. There's one character in the story we didn't really focus in a lot on. And and it would be bad for us not to because that's the one that I most relate to. That's the one that we all most relate to and that's the dad. The dad in the story. It's funny we don't spend a lot of time on him because it's funny because he's pivotal to the story. He has a real issue and it hurts him deep down, it hurts him. A life or death situation that he has to deal with And let me ask you this, besides scribe or disciple, is there a more powerful title in the story than dad? Is there a position more focused in this story on fixing this problem than that of the dad? Right, there's not. There's no greater title in this whole story than dad. And you don't think he did everything he could do to fix this problem? You don't think he would have spent every dime he has. He would have shed his own blood, tears, sleepless nights, 
worried if that demon's gonna pick up his baby and throw him into that fire that warms the rest of his family. He did everything he possibly could do. He brought his child to the religious leaders. He brought his child to the civil leaders. He brought his child to these, these guys that are following around this rabbi that I've heard rumors might be able to help me. Everything he possibly could have done. Dad tried everything in his power to fix the life or death situation in front of him. And nothing worked until he came to Jesus. And when he got to Jesus, he said, look, if you... If you want to help, please do, because I have done everything I know to do. Jesus says, look, everything's possible for those who believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. You hear that man saying that? Has your heart ever cried that? I believe. I've, I've done everything I can. Everything I know how to do. Help me with the part I'm not even seeing. Help me with that. And Jesus fixes the problem. My friend, listen, every one of you, all of you, you are, from the moment you are born, you are faced with a life and death situation. Death after you're done living or life when you're done dying. Those are the questions. That's the situation that's in front of you. Life or death. You think when you get to heaven, you think when you die and you stand before the judge, when you die and you stand before Jesus, you think he's gonna care who your mama's neighbor was? You think he's gonna care? You think he's gonna, hold on, let's call the dean. Hold on, president so-and-so, pastor such-and-such, deacon so-and-so, they know me. Give them a call. You think that's gonna work? That's not gonna work. You think he's going to care about all the storms you face through your own grit and grind, your own strength? You think he's going to care? No, that's not going to work. The only thing that matters, the only thing at the end of the story that carries any weight is did you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? And I get it. Some of you come to Jesus and you're like, I kind of do, Right? There's no judgment on that. I'm not judging you. Some of you right now are thinking in your own heart, I, I kind of trust Jesus. I trust him as much as I understand. Well, hey, look, you're in the same spot the dad's in. You just pray the same prayer. Hey, dad voiced it for you. Just listen to his words. I believe Jesus. Just help my unbelief. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.